Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 90. One of the most crucial periods of the border war is underway, although military strategists didn't realise this until a little while later. It's imperative for Fapla to take Mavinga in 1987. This would have pushed the South Africans much further south and factored into Luanda's plan, along with the Cubans, to begin building longer runways for bombers and fighter aircraft to take full control of southern Angola. And who knows? I'll get some of the Russians' views as we go. They were also aware of this ultimate plan and to set up a possible jump-off point to invade Avambaland should this war continue interminably. While Moscow's original strategy was to avoid this kind of incursion, by 1987 the Soviet Union was under huge pressure economically and wanted the War of Independence in Namibia to end ASAP. Fapler's 21st Brigade had been stopped twice from crossing the Lombo River in September and October 1987. It was a visit by SA President P.W. Boerter on the 28th of September, days before the Battle of the Lombo really broke out, that set the tone for the next two years of this war. He'd flown into Mavinga to meet with the commanders of 20HQ and was joined by Defence Minister Magnus Malan and Defence Force Chief Yanni Hildenhes. It was Boerter who decided to give his blessing to the offensive phase of Operation Modular. The aim was now to utterly destroy the enemy brigades deployed west of the Quito River and south of the Lomba. This was planned before the onset of the rainy season, only a couple of months away. The bigwigs were very clear. They wanted Fapla to be beaten so badly that there would be no thought of a counter-offensive for at least another year. This would buy Boerter and his National Party time back home, where the ANC and PSC attacks on infrastructure, as well as the civil uprising, was causing him some strife. It was also noted at the time by the chief of the SADF that Boerter had said he'd authorise whatever additional forces would be needed, and by that he obviously meant tanks. We'll hear more about the South African battle tank, the Ulifant, at the end of this episode. Boerter is reported to have also wrapped various officers on the knuckles at that meeting in Mavinga, demanding why Quito Kwanavali had not been attacked and why tanks were not already deployed. At least, this is according to two sources who spoke to historian Leopold Scholz. One was Major General Chris Tyrion of military intelligence, who remembers Boerter saying it was necessary to occupy Quito Kwanavali for any victory. Other sources pointed out that the SADF generals had developed this expensive tank, the Olifant, only to leave it behind at the beginning of Operation Modular, and Boerter supposedly criticised them for this decision. These generals later claimed they could not release the Olifant because the cabinet had not sanctioned this act. Reading about all this finger-pointing is interesting, but to be quite honest, a bit of a red herring. The real issue right now was not tank versus tank, it was poor information. The SADF intelligence reports were bad, atrocious in some cases, patchy and a cacophony of guesswork. Some domains allow more precision than others, and well-known philosopher Karl Popper famously distinguished between precise clocks and chaotic clouds. Intelligence gathering can be a chaotic cloud. An entry in 20SA Brigade's war diary for the 29th of September contains three phases for the upcoming offensive. Phase 1, the enemy must be prevented from taking Mavinga. Phase 2, the SADF would conduct operations north of the Lomba River. In other words, they would chase Fapla's four main brigades, 21st, 16th, 47th and 59th. And third phase, the advance on Quito Kwanavali. 
Whatever finger-pointing you'd care to support, there's no doubt that the SADF generals were not going to act decisively. They would continue to approach this significant moment in a rather hesitant fashion. What the South Africans didn't know is that Fapla's 47 Brigade was running short of fuel. They could not continue their advance towards Mavinga even if they wanted to, and their food was also running low. 47 Brigade's commander was threatened with court-martial if he withdrew. That order was rescinded on the 1st of October, and 47 Brigade was told to finish building a temporary TMM bridge over the Lomba River, then to withdraw to the north and join up with other FAPLA forces. Back at SADF Mabinga HQ, Commandant Dion Ferreira was receiving radio intercept updates. He was listening in to FAPLA's calls. It was also true that FAPLA, using their Russian, Cuban and East German comms experts, had broken UNITA's code by now and were doing the same. Fapla's 47 and 59 brigades were communicating about their next moves and advanced party had been sent from 47 carrying the wounded to the rear and then they brought in more ammunition and food. Ferreira knew that 47 brigade was constructing their TMM bridge at the confluence of the Lomba and Kuzizi rivers. This was their big mistake. At least, that's what the South Africans believed. The construction was taking place a few kilometres east of where Fapla's strongest defensive position had been established. They were relying on their MiGs to keep the SADF away. The question facing the South Africans now was would 47 Brigade head east, then cross the more open territory north, or would 59 Brigade cross the TMM bridge south, then both units withdraw west? There was also a serious question about whether these two brigades could actually swing back towards Mavinga instead of retreating. Questions, questions, questions. Then more pressing news arrived by way of artillery observer Major Pierre Franken, who was sitting in a tree overlooking 47 Brigade's positions. The Angolans appeared to be moving into the open felt east of their defensive zones towards the bridge. By the afternoon of the 2nd of October, more than 100 vehicles had concentrated in a very defined area just south of the bridge. His report was backed up by an SA Air Force reconnaissance flight, which photographed 47 bunched into an area less than 1,800 by 1,800 metres. The SAF Force Buccaneers had also been busy bombing the area, but on the 1st of October, one of these returned with its bombs still attached. Armourer Sergeant Philippus van Dijk spotted that the safety arming wire had primed the delay pistol mechanism and had been pulled out. This meant the bomb could detonate at any second, mainly because the bomb was fused for an hour delay and the aircraft had been flying for at least that time. He smelled the acetone, the fuse was fizzing away, but Van Dijk quickly opened the tailplane of the bomb, pulled the pistol out. The firing pin then went off five minutes later. If anyone was deserving of a honorous crooks, it was Van Dijk, which is what he received. Back at the Lomba, the movement of 47 Brigade meant they were now a juicy target both for the SA Air Force and ground forces. 59 Brigade tanks had also moved towards this bridge, they were either an advance force or more likely on standby to help in 47 began crossing the TMM back north. All of this was followed on Friday the 2nd of October with a UNITA message saying that the two wooden bridges that flanked the TMM bridge had been completed. A dramatic bit of news because it meant the Angolans would be moving in hours rather than days. The SADF had been planning to strike on the 5th but now this could be too late. Rifle Commander Kuba Smith was ready immediately. Ferreira and Smith met. Both agreed they needed to attack on the 3rd of October to catch Fapla in the open, squeezed together and withdrawing, if that was what they were doing. 
Pereira and Smith conferred, then decided to attack. This decision was taken by them, not by the top brass back home. Meanwhile, Franken, perched in his tree, continued providing crucial coordinates and the G-5 artillery pounded the Fapla vehicles starting on the evening of the 2nd. Early the next morning, Saturday 3rd of October, Combat Group Alpha began advancing from the east to the west following the wide Lomba floodplain. There were three lines of 61 Mex armoured car squadron leading this assault, all from Charlie with 12 Rattle 90s. Behind them was UNITA in a light infantry screen. Their task was to winkle out enemy units that would then be hit by the South African infantry following on. After these groups passed, the armoured cars of Alpha Company mechanised infantry supported by 81mm and 60mm mortars would travel through along with 3-2 battalions Golf Company mopping up all of the above. They weren't alone. To the south or the left, Combat Group Charlie would shadow Alpha as they headed westwards with a force of 61 Mex Bravo Company, 8 Rattle 90s, which were going to focus on the tanks. They were mainly a reserve force to cover Alpha Group from a counter-attack by a 47 Brigade from where the South Africans thought they were in a defensive position a few kilometres southeast. Another company of UNITA troops was assigned to track Bravo on their left, shadowing the Shadow Group, so to speak. The only problem with this plan was 47 Brigade was not where the South Africans thought they were. Everyone imagined the bulk of 47 had remained behind to the south, that they hadn't moved up to the TMM bridges in numbers. Everyone was wrong. So the plan was to overrun Fapla at the bridge, then wheeling south to the left, they would crunch through the enemy forces believed to be well away from this crossing point. Pereira and Smith were labouring under the illusion that only a small force had been sent to watch over the crossing point, and advanced to safeguard the position. The South Africans were reading from the handbook on mobile warfare. That an initial point where the enemy had arrived would be characterized by a weaker force, and that the main force would only be moved up once everything was secure. Easy enough to comment now, you'll say. At this stage, it was still unclear if 47 were going to retreat or attack with 59 Brigade in tow. Ferreira was relying on information, as all commanders, and the quality of his decision-making depended on the quality of that information. So combat groups Alpha and Charlie were ready to go before first light on the 3rd and began their move westwards in the dark, with their right wing of Rattles riding close to the bank of the Lomba River. It was somewhere between 0830 and 0910 that the right wing under Corporal Duncan Taylor drove into the first enemy units and opened fire. During the night of the 2nd of October, Fapla had been extremely busy. They'd shifted most of their heavy vehicles, tanks and armoured machines out of their temp base south of the river and were now in full strength at the TMM bridge. Incredible deeds were about to be performed on both sides. But as you'll hear, on the South African side, it was almost superhuman. They were outnumbered 3 to 1, and as the fighting intensified, both Smith and Ferreira decided to press home their slim advantage because Fapla had been caught by surprise. The Angolans were completely unaware of the SADF plans, despite hacking into UNITA and some SADF communication. A few minutes later, before Corporal Taylor opened up on the Angolan armoured vehicles, they had no idea that an assault force was on its way. The Angolans were doubly surprised because they were not dug in. They were moving towards the TMM bridges. And as you know by now, the SADF tactics were superior to the Angolans because they were more nimble when under fire. Fapla's central command was in chaos almost immediately. 
It's one thing to be ready to defend a strong position and another to defend in the open on the move in fractured groups. The South Africans' entire training was based on quick thinking, independent action, aggressive direct assaults, altering positions, changing up the key lines. The Soviet technique, as I mentioned, is not like NATO or Western forces. The chain of command is slow. The aptitude of individual officers is restricted. And the Angolans had been trained for two decades by Soviets. And this stodgy system was further thrown into chaos by the place they were hit at the Lomba, along their flanks. Ferreira and Smith's intelligence was incorrect, but the soldiers were ready for a fight. Charlie's squadron was going to slam straight into 47 Brigade's right flank starting at 1000 hours 15 that morning, and the stories of how these rattles responded is legendary. While this battle commenced, Angolan units at the bridge then bottlenecked as they tried to get away, blocking more movement. As before, the rattle rounds bounced off the T-54 and T-55's armour, so the tactic was to encircle single tanks with up to four rattles, then keep shooting the tank until it blew up. As they did this, the feared Soviet 23mm anti-aircraft guns boomed away, harassing the South Africans until UNITA infantry moved in to kill off the crews. Fapla troops immediately turned and fought with considerable courage, despite what some of the Russian sources say about their general attitude. By now it was a kill-or-be-killed moment, without any chance of immediate escape, and most men fight to the death when this is the military algebra facing them. Unfortunately for Fapla's overall aims in southern Angola, their fighters were eventually going to break. After a couple of hours of fighting, some of the South African rattles pulled back. Fapla could be heard on the radio claiming victory, but they were unaware that the armoured vehicles had run out of ammunition and were withdrawing to be resupplied, including the crucial gas needed to reduce their 90mm guns' recoil. It was quite a shock for the Angolans as they sought to advance into the spaces left by the rattles, only to run straight into the SADF and UNITA supported by artillery. Some of the messages by Fapla to Quito Quanavali include phrases like They are running away, the victory is ours, and Open fire, those bastards are running, the victory is ours, then Smoke them with the bombs! 59 Brigade, further north, chipped in When they come, my children are waiting and they are determined to defeat these bastards. So, lots of bastards and running. While they may have been correct about the first, they were totally wrong about the second. The radio blurted the new reality a few minutes later. The SADF are not running away. They are maintaining their position. That was at 1400 hours. Soviet advisers were caught alongside the Angolan troops and described what started as a battle and ended as a catastrophe. An upturned tank had shut down part of the TMM bridge and the approach roads had been damaged. Vehicles were burning or abandoned and quite quickly after this, the brigade troops began to retreat on foot, heading for the northern bank of the Lomba, many taking their chances with the crocodiles in swampy ground. The SA Air Force bombed the bridge and surrounding areas, trying to keep 59 Brigade from coming to 47's rescue. MiGs could be seen at times, but the SA Air Force didn't hang around long enough to be targeted, while on the ground the combatants were too close for ground support. The SADF charged in again for the second assault with refreshed gas and ammunition. But then a rifle 90 commanded by Lieutenant Adrian Hind was hit by T-54 and he was killed. Two others in the rifle were wounded. Then another rifle was hit and Lieutenant Michael O'Connor was wounded. All the casualties were flown out by Puma Kazabak. Still the Angolans kept on fighting, although their units were fleeing in some numbers now. It was only after the South Africans' third assault that they finally broke. 
with Smith deploying the eight rifles of the anti-tank platoon to the front. The 47 Brigade members, still alive, then fled towards the river in their hundreds, being shot as they went. Then Box Smith ordered a ceasefire, and the carnage ended. For a full-scale mechanised battle, the biggest in decades in Africa, the numbers were frightfully lopsided. Fapla had lost hundreds dead. In fact, they refused to ever reveal exactly what the death rate was. It was so bad. The SADF lost one dead, four wounded. Farplatz thought lost close to 600 troops. Three T-55s and 18 T-54s were destroyed. Two tank recovery vehicles burned out. 26 BTR-60 armoured personnel carriers flattened. It was a desperate battle for the Angolans. They had gambled so much on destroying UNITA at Mavinga. Now they were in retreat back to Quito, Guanavali. But the destruction didn't end there. The South Africans captured a strategically important SAM-8 missile system and blew up three others. They destroyed one service-to-air missile carrier and then seized a second. A host of other vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, artillery pieces and infantry fighting vehicles were seized or destroyed. More than three quarters of 47 Brigade's material was gone. It was the SAM-8 that caused a lot of friction with UNITA. The rebel movement wanted to sell this to the Americans for a few million dollars. The SADF wanted to figure it out, learn about its innards, and perhaps re-engineer a version. One of the Russian interpreters, whose diary I've read, described what happened. On the Lomba, misfortune had befallen them. He spoke about 21st and 47th Brigade. They had been battered with shells from the rapid-firing guns of the South Africans. One of his colleagues, Oleg Snutko, had his leg broken and his hand torn off, and he died within 48 hours. Four other Russians were wounded. They were flown to Luanda for treatment. The Russians noted that the SADF was using drones and then reported this back to their commanders as well. All Russians and most Cubans now pulled back to the best defensive position, the town of Quito, Guanavali. The SAF was attacked again on Sunday the 4th of October with Commandant Rankin in his mirage leading a four-ship F-1AZ Farhoi against the Angolan 59th Brigade northeast of Mavinga. But the Angolans were now well briefed and ready for this technique. If you remember, it's a low-level rising to let bombs go, then drop to low-level way to avoid missiles. However, it does leave the planes susceptible to ground fire and alert missile systems placed in an arc around a target. This is what the Angolans had done, and on this morning they were ready for the SA Air Force. Because the Mirages had extremely limited endurance, they could only attack from the south, and this is where the Angolans placed their missiles and other anti-aircraft systems. Pilot Norman Minna led the first pair of mirages to their pitch-up point, but there were very few of these visible on the Angolan flat plains, and the enemy placed their missiles precisely at that point. As Minna pitched up and released his bombs, lobbing them towards 59 Brigade positions, he spotted a smoke trail that passed over his cockpit, then a second. It was Sam's seven missiles, and the pilots called off their strike, just in time as another missile missed the third mirage and slammed into the trees behind. The enemy's clever deployment to a previously used pitch-up point had been a close call for the South Africans and a lesson learned. On the 5th of October, Fapla's surviving 16, 21 and 59 brigades were ordered to begin withdrawing from Mavinga, but before doing so, the Angolans tried to destroy all their strategic equipment, particularly the SA-8s. Commandant Johann Lehmann 
climbed aboard one of the captured T-55s and drove this tank across the mudflats littered with burnt-out vehicles to tow away one of these SA-8 ground-to-air missile systems. He was awarded the honorous crooks for that, and now the initiative had shifted to UNITA and the South Africans once more. Then UNITA tried to seize the SA-8 from the SADF forces, but Ferreira stood firm, refusing to surrender the unit to the rebel group. It was eventually flown out aboard an overloaded C-160 transporter. And yet, they were exhausted. The SADF was unable to pursue the retreating FAPA brigades, a situation compounded by the extended South African line. Everyone then took a breath, because on their way to join Alpha Battle Group were elements of the 4th South African Infantry Battalion, along with another battery of eight G5 guns, a troop of three fully motorised G6 guns, and crucially, a squadron of 13 Ulifant tanks. The tanks were a first for the SADF. Never before had they been deployed in this border war. Meanwhile, Cuban President Fidel Castro was horrified by the reports of the battle on the Lomba and sent General Arnaldo Ocha Sanchez as the new chief of the Cuban military in Angola, along with 3,000 more troops and an additional armoured brigade. Sanchez, however, had no idea of his tragic fate at the hands of Castro later. Everyone's attention now shifted northwest of Mavinga to a place called Quito Guanavali. This was going to be a long and bloody fight for control of a strategic town, and that fight would last until a ceasefire was signed in 1989. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or if you're in a rush, you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, I'll speak.